0: All right. Hi, welcome to the Physionic Podcast. Uh, My name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD candidate in molecular medicine. uh, And we're going to be investigating, well, I also have some research experience in metabolism, actually specifically in uh, skeletal muscle metabolism from my master's program in my undergrad. Uh, Thank you for the feedback, guys, on hearing me. Uh, And today we're going to be discussing a topic that is actually hotly, or maybe it was hotly debated Uh, a number of years ago. It was brought forward, this kind of idea of metabolic damage. Uh, We're not going to go too, too in depth with metabolic damage itself, but we're going to look at a paper that actually looks at the effect that weight loss or calorie restriction has on metabolism. And some, some really unique aspects of how it affects metabolism actually. Uh, and then actually in future content, what I'd like to do is kind of delve deeper into this overall idea because to, to, to my knowledge, there's no direct evidence that metabolic damage occurs. Uh, at least not figuring out the mechanisms uh, for for which that it occurs, and uh, it's something that I've thought about quite a lot actually since it kind of became part of the whole fitness industry and fitness world. With uh, I believe it was Lane Norton, Dr. Lane Norton, that uh, introduced it. I think he's maybe stepped back a little bit from the idea of damage. Um, and he's kind of rebranded it as metabolic adaptation. So that's kind of where we're going to go uh, with this piece of content. And then in future pieces of content, I've got uh, a few other studies that I've started to kind of kind of look over. And I hope that we can at least get some more information, kind of have that a stockpile of information kind of put together so that we can uh, make some sense and maybe get to some sort of conclusion on if metabolic adaptation is uh, really a, uh, a real thing. To a certain degree, it certainly is. I don't think, uh, and I'll cover that, but uh, there are particular versions of it that people are hotly debate. Uh, Again, because the mechanisms are really tough to tease out, and it's something, again, that I've put a lot of thought into, and I'm still very much confused because uh, while I may understand the data, I think that trying to figure out the actual mechanism within the cells is extremely difficult. But without further ado, let me go ahead and jump into this particular paper. If you're listening to this after the fact, or if you're listening to this uh, as, as I'm going through this live stream, because I am live right now, uh, I will have the paper linked for you. It is open access. It's relatively simple. There isn't a whole lot to it, but it's pretty straightforward, which is nice, and we'll be able to glean some information from it. So this paper looks at a process called adaptive thermogenesis, which is quite literally exactly what I was just talking about. It's just a different term for uh, metabolic adaptation. So adaptive, right? I mean, the same word there, but thermogenesis being the production of heat, right? So, uh, and I've explained this in the past, but briefly, when you have the breaking of an ATP molecule, an ATP molecule is cellular energy, when that gets broken, then it releases a certain amount of heat. And that's why we can relate cellular energy and therefore bodily energy to the overall heat production. And that's actually what we use uh, direct calorimetry for to actually figure out a person's metabolism or an object's uh, heat production or energy value, because we can relate that to heat. Uh, So adaptive thermogenesis is a name that's been given to reduce metabolism, and uh, it does occur with reduced food intake. That's not too much of a shock. There are many, many studies that have shown that. Um, One thing that I think that the literature overall is extremely clear on is that it does have an effect through uh, what's called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, So any sort of kind of fidgety movements, like I'm moving my hands around a little bit. Um, If you shake your leg a little bit, uh, that's all included in non-exercise activity thermogenesis or shortened as NEAT. So yes, uh, basically everybody agrees that you do get a down regulation or a reduction in NEAT, and therefore you get a reduction in your total metabolism as a result. However, does the adaptation, does that adaptive thermogenesis extend beyond just NEAT? And that's what actually this study looks into some, and it's going to offer some uh, explanations as well, which I found uh, really interesting. Actually, uh, just as a side note, just as a mention to Dr. Norton, uh, I actually... I went to his Facebook page from, I think like 2017 and found this paper that he had, uh, that he had released. Uh, he's not one of the authors, but he had read it and w- was essentially using it as, as an example of his ideas on, uh, uh, metabolic adaptation. So that's, that's what we're going to go through. And it's been theorized that, um, this might occur, or it's been hypothesized by uh, Dr. Norton, and maybe it's happened before. I don't know, but he certainly popularized it that it could occur to resting thermogenesis. So not just not just activity-based, but uh, and not specifically not just specifically non-exercise activity. So again, non-planned activity, but could happen in our resting state. So if we're just sitting, uh, do can we have reductions in metabolism? And the answer is yes, we do know that, but uh, typically it's attributed to things like uh, reductions in fat-free mass. So if you lose lean mass, then you're going to be losing some of those proteins and structures in your body that actually use calories, that actually use energy, and therefore uh, that's going to lower your metabolism. However, can it happen independent of that? And we will definitely have uh, some, some more discussions on that specific point uh, going forward, but we're going to kind of ease into it and touch on it in, uh, in, in this discussion. So it's been theorized also that um, there, there are some reductions in the nervous system drive. So the nervous system is obviously very important in terms of its connection to the musculature because it controls the musculature. And the drive of the cells, the neurons that actually communicate to the muscle cells, is important in that they control the contraction of the musculature. And they can control it in a number of different ways. But that actually hasn't been verified, but the idea is that you get a reduction in this nervous system drive or this uh, nervous system uh, activity, and that can also contribute to a reduction in the overall uh, adaptive thermogenesis or adaptive metabolism. So it seems that based on what these authors wrote, what these researchers mention is that short term, so just a few days of energy restriction actually increases activity. So we don't see a reduction in non-exercise activity thermogenesis or just activity in general, uh, but we actually see increases in activity. And the idea, the kind of theorized or hypothesized idea is that it's presumably for foraging purposes, kind of going back to ancient times, um, that you, we needed this, this kind of restlessness to, to go and uh, look for food and whatnot. But then unfortunately, prolonged uh, energy restriction ends up decreasing activity. And that's what we end up experiencing with uh, reductions in NEAT. And what we might see, well, I'll go ahead and allude to it, that we're going to see this and not just neat, but we're actually going to see it in exercise uh, activity thermogenesis as well. And that is through the suppression of physical activity and increasing the fuel economy of muscle. So, uh, exactly how that happens that is uh, a mystery but maybe we'll we'll be able to speculate a little bit i've got a few ideas so i'll let you know so ultimately where does this leave us uh what happens to metabolism with extreme calorie restriction that's what we're interested in uh in this particular paper so the study design is relatively simple as i mentioned this is in animals Uh, So actually last podcast, I I did a a paper that was both in animals and in humans, although predominantly in in animals and and cell lines. And in this podcast, this is going to be uh, in animals again. However, I can tell you that a lot of this actually carries over to humans because those studies have already been done, and that's actually what I'm going to be reporting on in uh, future upcoming weeks. Uh, I'll be touching on the hormonal aspects and the some of these results specifically that we're going to go over in this paper that actually translates exactly to humans as well. So, uh, I don't want you to necessarily walk away from this thinking that, um, we have to have too much skepticism like we often do when it comes to, to animal research, because this will, uh, a lot of it will, will translate. So they studied rats and, uh, they put these rats on a 50% calorie restriction for three weeks. So pretty severe. And actually right before this podcast, I had to look up if they had two groups of rats or if this was what's considered a repeated measures of design, uh, ex- or study where they have rats, they study them for X amount of time, uh, and then they put them on a calorie restriction. So that actually reduces the variability in the results because you're testing the same rat against itself. So the the gene profile is the exact same between the, the, the animal because it's animal at time point A and the same animal at time point B, which is different from a within subjects design where you have a completely different population of people versus another population of people, two completely different uh, populations of people or samples of people, I should say, and comparing them against one another. So, and it turns out that yes, this was uh, from what I understood. It is a repeated measures. So they actually had a, a ton of rats. They had like over forty or almost fifty rats uh, that they ended up uh, doing this experiment on. So what they did is they had them had the rats consume their normal amount of food, however much they wanted, uh, for about a week. And the researchers measured how much they were consuming, and then they then removed. Half of that food, so they they essentially gave them half of the food that they would normally eat, and then they had that happen. They did that for three weeks straight. Now they did a bunch well, maybe not a bunch, but they did a, a variety of different measures. They measured physical activity thermogenesis, which is what I was talking about earlier. That's uh, that's also including of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you have non-exercise and then you have exercise activity thermogenesis. Those come together and they create activity thermogenesis. So that's what we're talking about. And they also measured resting thermogenesis. And again, thermogenesis, we're using this kind of synonymously with metabolism. And they measured this uh, before, so in the baseline period when they were consuming their normal amounts, and then uh, at the end uh, of the three weeks of calorie restriction. And then they also measured, the researchers also measured norepinephrine levels, and I'll go into why that's important uh, in, in a little bit. But ultimately, they tested norepinephrine levels on, uh, in fat tissue as well as muscle tissue a variety of different muscle tissues, actually. But uh, I'm not going to bog you down too, too much with every single type of muscle tissue that they used. Okay, so uh, if you're watching the podcast, uh, I have a few of the graphics, a few of the data points, kind of the major ones, but I left out some of them. Uh, but like I said, the paper's linked so you can check it out for yourself. And if you're listening, don't worry about it. I will be explaining things as we move along. Okay, so for this uh first piece of data what they're doing is they are measuring the total amount of metab or the total metabolism. And here uh they're showing the ad libitum, which is the rats when they were consuming at free will, whenever they wanted to, they had full access to food, however much they wanted. And then with the 50% calorie restriction, which is again, that's a pretty severe calorie restriction. And so they're looking at the metabolism in that situation, which is measured in uh, kilocalories or calories And then on the x-axis, they have uh, body weight and lean mass. And they wanted to normalize to, you know, the calories to body weight and then the calories to lean mass. And um, the reason why they wanted to differentiate between the two is because with lean mass, then you'd be subtracting the fat mass. You'd be subtracting fat and you'd only be basing it on their, uh, their muscle and their bone and stuff like that. So that might give you different results. Who knows? Uh, but ultimately what they found is that uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, they did not find different results. And the result was that their total energy expenditure or their total metabolism declined. Uh, so decreased at the end of those three weeks. Now, if, if you know anything about, you know, kind of the, the basic literature you'll know that that's not a surprise. Your metabolism will decrease as you get further into a diet. Uh, and that's of course going to be the, the same in this, in this situation as well, because you are massively reducing their caloric consumption. So just by the fact, and this is just one point of many, just by the fact of you weighing less, you are moving a smaller object across the same distance. Therefore less energy will be used, uh, to move that smaller, that smaller object. Now, what was really interesting here is that, and I don't, I'm not going to show the data, although it looked identical to, to what I'm showing here, uh, this reduction in the uh, calorie restricted group, or once they were calorie restricted, because it's the same group technically, uh, they experienced the exact same effect when, with, when they measured the non-resting metabolism. So the uh, activity metabolism. So that's not a huge, huge shock because you would expect that because again, NEAT uh, f- uh, plays into that. However, even on top of that, they also measured their resting metabolism and shockingly, they found the exact same results. So across the board, total metabolism, which is made up of resting and non-resting metabolism, both of those were affected and had decreases in uh, their, their overall uh, t- energy expenditure. So their muscles are essentially releasing less heat. And we're going to actually um, be able to, to I'm going to be able to show you that Matter of fact, I'm going to show that to you right now because I just (laughs) realized I didn't have any additional notes on that. Okay. So here they're looking at, uh, the, so we know at this point that the total metabolism is decreased. We know that the resting metabolism is decreased, which is the shocker and the, uh, non resting metabolism is also decreased. And now they're looking at a treadmill test. And what they're doing here is they're actually measuring the muscle, the actual muscle belly itself. And they're testing how much heat is emanating from this treadmill test. And this is a standardized treadmill test. So they put the rats on a on a mini treadmill and they essentially measure, they essentially force the rats based off of uh, the incline and the forced speed of the treadmill, the rats have to move forward. And there are certain incentives that I'm not going to go into, but there are certain incentives for the rats to, to continue to stay on the treadmill and to, to function properly, to, to work towards uh, moving across the treadmill. So they have, again, the, they did this with the rats when before they were in calorie restricted. And then again, when they were calorie restricted. And they did this for 35 minutes. And as each, let's say 10, every 10 minutes, eight minutes, something like that, nine minutes, they would uh, increase the difficulty of the treadmill. So it's a standardized procedure for a set amount of time. And then from there, I'm gonna go back to the data in just a second, but from there, then they measure the heat that's emanating from the muscle specifically in in their legs. And they're able to then determine from that, again, based off of what I mentioned earlier, that that's a proxy measure of the actual heat is a proxy measure of the amount of presumably the amount of ATP that's being released. Now, there are certain confounding variables to that, um, which I may get into. But the point is that they're measuring the heat off of the musculature specifically. And then from there, they're going to be able to figure out, okay, well, if more heat gets, gets released, then that means that there's a higher metabolic rate in those uh, muscles. So going back to the data, what they ended up finding is that uh, there was a higher heat production in the rats when they were not under uh, calorie restriction. However, once they were calorie restricted across all time points, they saw reduced uh, production of heat. So this actually raises some really interesting questions uh, because it kind gets of you, gets your mind uh, thinking. And this is actually something that uh, still confuses me to this, to this day, uh, something that I've asked many professors about and uh, many researchers about uh, at the different universities that I've been uh, enrolled in. And I've done quite a bit of reading in this as well, uh, mainly because I'm just interested in this, this particular aspect of metabolism. And so if the muscles dispense less heat, the idea there is potentially that uh, there's less work being performed. But that seems highly unlikely because uh, the, the test was standardized. Although I believe uh, that particular test was done on eight rats and Uh, only six of them in the calorie restricted, once they were calorie restricted, ended up finishing that experiment. So is there something going on there? Yeah, maybe. But ultimately, we know that at least six of the rats, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, uh, finished the experiment and therefore based off of that data, that they, they, everything was standardized. They had a set speed, they had a set gradient. So everything was the exact same, except for obviously the one group was calorie restricted. So it's unlikely that um, less work is being performed. Uh, so the idea that they end up proposing is that you get more of a metabolic efficiency. You get a greater bang for your buck. And <laughs> the problem that I have with that kind of, that kind of explanation Is that I don't saying that something is more efficient or saying something that has a greater bang for your buck uh, isn't a very physiological way of explaining things. It might satisfy some people, but for me, it just drives me insane because I I want to know what's the mechanism, what's going on there, and the there's there's a bunch of different possibilities. None of them completely make sense in my mind, but from my reading and whatnot. Um, so it's possible that you're getting a better, uh, quote unquote, bang for your buck. And if you, if you have any ideas, please, you know, shoot them over to me. I'm, I'm always happy to discuss because this is really a mystery for me. Um, so it's possible that you get an increase in the available uh, ATP without using traditional metabolic means. So let me uh, indulge me here for, for for a minute as I kind of explain some of the molecular aspects of metabolism. People think about metabolism as just like this, the, the expenditure and the intake. And like that is the most general version of metabolism that you, you could possibly think of. Uh, There's so, so, I mean, we're talking molecular, we're talking subcellular aspects. Okay, so let me get into that a little bit obviously you have different pathways, right? You have glycolysis, uh, which is where your sugars go into glycolysis and then they produce energy. And then you have, uh, what's called beta oxidation and oxidative phosphorylation, which those, uh, use fats. So fat molecules get broken up and produce energy. So that's, again, that's another kind of level deeper, but even deeper than that, there are other mechanisms by which your cells can maintain their ATP levels. Um, so, the ATP again is the cellular energy. Uh, so, and there are other uh, forms, other molecules that are also cellular energy, but the predominant one is ATP. So, ATP can actually be recycled. So when we get that breaking, I mentioned this at the very beginning of the podcast. That when you get the breaking, which is called a hydrolysis reaction of the ATP, uh, you get the production of ADP, a adenosine diphosphate, and then a phosphate gets lobbed off. And then from there, you have actual recycling systems. One of which is you may have heard of it: creatine. Right, creatine kinase. So this particular enzyme will take ADP and throw, uh, or I'm sorry, will throw a phosphate onto uh, a creatine phosphate system and allow for the regeneration of ATP. So that's that's one recycling system of ATP. Another recycling system is uh, actually something that I studied uh, a little bit. Is well, actually I studied a different en- enzyme right downstream from it, but adenylate. Uh, adenylate kinase. So adenylate kinase, what that does is it takes uh, two ADP molecules. So the ones that I just mentioned, once ATP is broken into its ADP and phosphate, if another one gets broken into an ADP and phosphate, then you have two ADP molecules. And then from there, adenylate uh, kinase can take those two and produce an ATP, so it's recycling an ATP, and it's uh, creating an AMP, so a monophosphate, adenosine monophosphate, and that's the molecule that I studied, because that ends up going through what's called a deamination uh, reaction through AMP deaminase, but that's beside the point. The point is that there are a number of ways that the cell can recycle ATP without necessarily going through glycolysis or without necessarily going through oxidative phosphorylation that I mentioned earlier. So is it possible maybe that the cell, the muscle cell becomes more efficient in that regard and is able to tap into these particular pathways of adenylate kinase or whatever it might be. And there are others as well to regenerate ATP. It's possible. Uh, is it kind of a stretch? I would say so. Uh, And it's also possible that uh, the muscle cell will focus so much on contraction and will allow for the performance to remain stable, meaning that the rats can still run on the treadmill at just like they normally would, but the heat production is lower because the contraction itself is still exactly where it's supposed to be. So the force production may be right around where it's supposed to be, but other areas of the cell may be down-regulated. So other uh, systems that, that would usually play a role would, I don't know, clean up systems, whatever it might be. I I can't think of anything off the top of my head, the expression of different genes to produce more proteins and all that, all those could be downregulated to to compensate for the fact that ATP needs to be shuttled towards, uh, the force production, the actual contraction of the musculature. That's another possibility. Um, and also It's also possible that heat dissipation, and this is actually one of the confounding variables that uh, or factors that may get in the way of the actual measurement, is that heat dissipation may be better because there's less subcutaneous fat. So while they are measuring the muscle, they're actually, it's not like they're they're probing the muscle itself. Like they're just taking the muscle and measuring that they're measuring it while the, you know, the rats like going through its exercise and whatnot. So as a result, you're also uh, measuring the insulation of that musculature. And you can imagine that if the rats, and I'll go ahead and tell you this right now, that the the rats lost 20% of their body weight. Being on that 50% calorie restriction for, for three weeks. So it didn't take long. They lost a lot of body weight. And then on top of that, I don't have this, uh, this up for to, to put on the screen, but again, it's in the paper, their fat mass decreased to less than half. Uh, so they lost like 55% of their fat. They also lost some lean mass. So imagine that imagine if the rat is moving on this treadmill, and you're measuring the heat production. You may have some insulation in this the very same rat when it's heavier, it's fatter, and it's got more lean mass and whatnot. But more so, specifically on it, on the fat, if if the skin, the fold between the muscle, which is deeper into the actual leg itself, and then the skin, there's there's space there and that space is filled with fat and that's called subcutaneous fat. So if that is thicker, then that would then lead to a reduced release of heat. So a slower release of heat. So that's a possible confounder because then the leaner rats would have wouldn't have as much of that subcutaneous so the layer would be thinner and therefore they can uh, dissipate heat more more quickly or easier or you know however and i, I don't know if that would end up becoming a confounding uh, variable in this situation but it could i would think that presumably it could so the point is though that there's something is going on here and it's confusing and it's really interesting and I think that's kind of this this idea plays into this idea of metabolic adaptation and thermogenesis that is that is independent of what we've kind of thought about in terms of it it's just a reduction in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. If that's the case, yeah, I mean that's fine. But here we're measuring things that are outside of that explanation, and that's what I'm trying to explain. So again, if you have any theories. Let me know. I'd be happy to to discuss it. Uh, Okay, so another thing that ended up happening is that their metabolism actually switched a little bit more towards fat metabolism. Is that a huge shock? No, it's not. Um, Their RER, or what's called the respiratory exchange ratio, went down some, and that is an indication of an increase in fat oxidation or fat use. So that's not a huge shock because if you're in a calorie restriction, Uh, when you're calorie restricted, you're, you're burning a lot of fat. And as we saw their body fat decreased massively, or at least I guess what you heard (laughs) because I didn't actually end up showing it. But again, it's, it's in the paper, so you can look it up for yourself. Okay. So then the next thing that uh, I wanted to touch on is this effect on norepinephrine. So I teased it earlier and let's, let's go ahead and, and touch on that a little bit. So Let me throw this graphic up here. uh, And again, I'll describe it for you if you're you're just listening. Um, So norepinephrine can be released from a variety of different areas, uh, but one of them is the adrenals. And then you can also get the release as a, a neurotransmitter from neurons or brain cells. And that release of norepinephrine can then have an effect on. We're going to be f- talking about two different tissues. One of them is muscle, and the other one is fat. And the effect that norepinephrine has on fat is it encourages lipolysis, so it encourages fat breakdown. And which obviously that would make some sense, right? Because again, we're talking about these rats that are in this massive calorie deficit and the other effect that it has is on muscle and it actually increases the uh, ability for muscle to create force and it actually also increases energy expenditure the reason why or at least one of the reasons why is because with greater muscle contraction you need more energy to facilitate that energy that muscle contraction now there are uh, there are other mechanisms and this is another area that I'd really love to dive Uh, deeper into but there are other mechanisms that uh, can lead to energy uh, changes in energy expenditure and some of them actually many of them are hormonally related but let's focus on uh, norepinephrine for, for, for the time being. So they measured norepinephrine levels in these tissues and I'm only going to be showing a little bit of the data here but Uh, norepinephrine in fat with the 50% uh, calorie restriction uh, dramatically increased norepinephrine levels, which as I explained, makes a good amount of sense because if uh, you're going to have fat cells that are going to be dumping all this fat, then obviously norepinephrine levels are going to be higher because that actually stimulates the lipolysis, that fat breakdown. Now, on the other hand, and I'm only showing one of the three muscles they tested. They tested uh, the soleus, which is in the calves. And uh, I forgot the other one. They tested one more. Uh, and then the quadricep, which is the one that I'm showing. Oh, the gastrocnemius, which is also in the um, the, the calves, but it's, uh, it's a different fiber type. It doesn't matter. The point is that they had the same results across all three muscle types. And that is a reduction in norepinephrine so why might you get a reduction in uh, norepinephrine and this kind of starts to raise this point that maybe you're getting this reduction in in norepinephrine because you're getting less stimulation of the musculature. So that may have an effect on the expenditure, the energy expenditure as a result. Now that's still to me, that's a bit flimsy uh, because although we're kind of bringing in this, this neural component or this hormonal component, uh, it still doesn't really explain all the details. And I'll, I'll kind of, Work through that as we get into the conclusions and and the takeaways, but the point is that norepinephrine increases in the fat and decreases in the musculature, so that's a lower what's called a lower sympathetic drive. Sympathetic meaning excitation, a more a greater activity uh, in muscle, and that's uh, for the nervous system. Sympathetic drive is related to the nervous system, so the nervous system is having or norepinephrine is having less of an impact on muscle and having a greater impact on fat. Okay. So finally, one more hormone, which is actually something that uh, I've discussed in the past, actually relatively recently in the past on Physionic, because uh, I've, I've touched on this particular receptor. And this is actually the most, the, the most mutated receptor in the human body, when it comes in relation to obesity, so uh, not that everybody who's obese has a mutated receptor, but um, there is a greater level of mutation of this particular receptor, and that's why I think they ended up wanting to look at this as well. And that receptor is called melanocortin receptor, uh, melanocortin receptor four specifically, but there there are other ones as well. And what it does is it actually, if if you get the release. Of this particular hormone, which is released from the brain, uh, called melanocyte-stimulating hormone (MSH), that can leave the brain and it, it can actually be in your bloodstream as well. And there are receptors on the muscle muscle cells. And what it can do is it, it can bind this particular receptor, this melanocortin receptor, and it can increase energy expenditure. So I'm not going to show you the data, but again, they did do that exact thing. So they actually, uh, what's called cannulated uh, these these uh, rats. So they essentially gave them, uh, it's kind of an invasive method, but they, they gave these uh, rats an infusion of this of an agonist, which means a molecule that binds specifically, or you'd hope specifically to this melanocortin receptor. And when it does that, they want to see what effect does that have? They're kind of trying to kind of simulate what it's like when, can can they get some sort of a rescue? Can they get some sort of an effect from the manipulation of this particular hormone that does have an effect on metabolism? And what they end up finding is that yes, they do, actually in both groups. Um, before the calorie restriction, they noticed that when they add this uh this this agonist for uh the melanocortin receptor, that that increased metabolism. And the same exact thing was found when the rats were uh in their 50% calorie restriction for three weeks. Uh, they found that, again, there was a stimulation of metabolism. So they're not exactly saying that this is the reason, like this is the one thing, Uh, but they are pointing out a few different ways, you know, norepinephrine has an effect, uh, melanocortin stimulating hormone might have an effect on this melanocortin receptor. So they're essentially just kind of creating this small groundwork of like, you know, this is a pretty complex story. There's a lot here, And there's some mysteries here that still need to be uh, figured out. So with that, let me go ahead and conclude things. And then, uh, I'm going to give you my one take at the very end of like something that I, I, that bothers me. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, this, study shows that uh, caloric restriction leads to reductions in metabolism. That's actually been found in humans as well, uh, many, many times over. And I'll be covering a lot of that. Well, maybe not a lot, but some of that data in upcoming podcast episodes, Uh, physical activity based and resting both decreased. Uh, The decrease in physical activity is expected, as I mentioned, but reductions in resting metabolism is really intriguing, uh, although perplexing. And beyond that, Uh, rats that perform the same forced exercise, remember that treadmill test, expend less energy. Or there's some confounding variables there that I may have mentioned. Uh, But if that's not the case, then they do expend less energy. So the rats weight loss, So the the rats actually lost weight. Uh, They had fat loss and they had lean mass loss as well. But it's not believed to account for all of the decline in metabolism. So, and this actually I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you in one of the future papers in humans, the exact same thing is found. That when they they account for weight loss, they account for fat loss, they account for lean mass loss, muscle loss, it still doesn't account for the total drop in metabolism. So what could be going on there? And then I'm probably going to go into uh, some hormonal aspects as well, some endocrinology to potentially explain some of that. Although admittedly, even I'm still not satisfied with the answers that I've found so far. So, uh, hopefully I can find, find, uh, the, the full, the real answer, something that really gives me, uh, some satisfaction. So not only that, sympathetic drive is decreased. Remember the neurons or really the the release of norepinephrine. Um, And we know that the addition or the injection of this metabolism boosting hormone, which is the uh, melanocyte stimulating uh, hormone, which binds the melanocortin receptor, uh, increases metabolism a little bit. So here's, here's the thing that bothers me is that extracellularly we have some clues which means extracellular means outside of the cell we 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 realize that norepinephrine binds we know that the melanic melanocyte stimulating hormone binds all these have an effect on metabolism that's great but and we see so decreases in sympathetic drive reductions in these hormones and which I'll be getting into a lot more in the future but intracellularly. That's what bothers me. Inside the cell, how do you explain what are the changes inside the cell that are actually causing these metabolic changes? Because the, the question is one of the biggest questions I've ever had, which has is, is just been uh, nagging me for the longest time, is do ATP levels actually drop? Because if they do, that would lend some evidence to, okay, well, we've got some actual changes within the cell and it's not steady state. Meaning that ATP levels are at one level uh, when you are fully fed, you're feeding enough to maintain your body or maybe to gain weight. And when you're calorically restricted, they still stay the same. So even when you're losing body fat, let's say you've lost 50 pounds, your ATP levels within your individual cells stay the exact same. They're stagnant, they're stable. And, or is it that they actually change? And if they change, then that could have some implications. However, I did a little reading and Uh, or I've been trying to do reading uh, on this particular subject, and it's really difficult to find literature uh, on this, but there have been a few studies that have shown that ATP levels stay consistent. They stay constant. So how are we getting these changes in these tissues when the ATP levels are staying the exact same? There's a disconnect there, and we, I need to figure it out because I, I'm dying to figure out this answer. Uh, it's been years of me, uh, trying to figure this out because, uh, Dr. Norton likes to talk about metabolic adaptation stuff. And that's fine when you're doing these kinds of measures of, you know, we're going to measure the muscle and we're going to measure, uh, just like the, if it's, uh, the oxygen uh, exchange, if it's respiratory exchange ratio, whatever it might be, these are kind of like, okay, we're going to measure this and we're going to get the results. Fine. If you see differences, that's fine. I mean, I, I can't dispute those differences. However, I want to know how, why, why are there these differences? What's happening on the subcellular level that's causing these differences? And I don't think hormones is a good enough uh, excuse. I don't think it's a good enough reason because even with a mixture of different hormones, if you're talking about, I'll be talking about this thyroid hormone, which is a huge one, leptin levels, if you're talking about this melanocortin uh, receptor, whatever it might, might be, what's happening once it binds to the cells? Are ATP levels dropping? Are ADP levels increasing? Is glycolysis uh, decreasing? Is it allowing less glucose in? Is it allowing less fat in? Like what's going on? What's going on? That's, I need to know. Okay. So, but intracellularly, what are the changes that are occurring? And my answer is I don't have a clue. Uh, so it's something that I'd really like to investigate in the future. Not that I haven't been already for, for years kind of casually, but, uh, so if you have any theories, shoot them my direction, I would love to love to hear it. Okay. I've been prattling on for, uh, a long time, much longer than I intended intended, but, uh, this is, uh, this is interesting stuff. So hopefully you find it, find this stuff as interesting as I do, because, well, I'll probably be covering a little bit more on it. Uh, and I will be covering it in humans as well. So, uh, with that, I wish you a wonderful day. Thanks for stopping by and I'll catch you in the next one. See ya.